I am Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Archbishop Bernadita Uza, Apostolic Nisio, and Permanent Observer of the Holy See to the United Nations, and Permanent Observer of the Holy See to the Organization of American States. Originally from the Philippines, he entered into the diplomatic service in 1990 and has served in Bulgaria, Albania, and Haiti. You can find his full bio on the page of this episode. Again, I really want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you, I, Professor, I, I, also for, uh, for waiting a while. And, uh, you know, the last time there was a little bit of uh, confusion in my, in my calendar and the date. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm happy always to wait for something good to happen. <laughs> And it's, I, I feel fortunate to be able to sit down and talk about this very important issue in terms of how Islam is being used as a tool by which to radicalize. And what I've been missing, in my view, is the lack of the effective counter-narrative using the same religious precepts to uh, counter effectively the propaganda that Islamist extremists use uh, in order to promote their cause. What's your take on this? What does need to be done? What can we do? There has been uh, lots of discussion on that. Uh, there have been lots of uh, open debates at the level of the Security Council also on how to counter the uh, terrorist narrative using uh, in a religion or, or God yeah. uh, to perpetrate uh, violent acts and to further, we might say, really violent ideologies and extremisms. And uh, there is certainly, there are certain suggestions, like uh, you could hear so many countries, Muslim countries and Christian countries, and you know, countries which you might say do not identify with one or the other, uh, uh, you know, that uh, insistence on the social and economic side of the question. Uh, as you said, it really doesn't target directly what you are asking in the sense that, you know, are there religious counter-narratives that we could use to fight uh, these uh, extremist narratives using religion or religious passages as justifications? That is, well, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a certain angulation of the same question, of the same problem, but uh, there is always a tendency to try to avoid that for people who don't think they are not competent to talk about how religion itself or the same religious precepts being used by violent extremists to be used to make a counter-narrative against their propaganda. So uh, there's always a tendency of the international community, whether it's the Security Council or the General Assembly or anywhere, I guess, to emphasize the need to fight uh, the root causes you know, of these uh, fundamentalist yeah, terror groups. Yeah, yeah. I think there is, uh, there is no question that that's useful, but really doesn't directly answer your question. But there's no question. Well, yeah, no. I mean, I agree yeah. with you, and I agree with the general consensus. We've got to deal with the root causes. That is, it is not the mutual exclusive. Yeah. That is, the, having a counter-narrative has its own place. But dealing effectively with the root causes is absolutely critical. That is, you cannot necessarily, you cannot have one way or the other. They both need they are, to be employed. Uh, yeah, they, are, they are all to be employed. Uh, the question of, uh, for Christians especially, and uh, you know, thinkers uh, and even religious leaders in the West, there is always a hesitation 
to lead on the religious, you know, the, the, a kind of a religious campaign or education to make these counter-narratives. There is always that impression that it should be uh, the, the Islamic religious leaders who should do that. Uh, we will support them. We will, uh, we will be there with you. We will kind of dialogue with you, but it should be you uh, leading the charge. Uh, when it comes to countering these narratives, well, I no, think yeah, I, I, yeah. I think it's certainly it's respectful. I think it's the right way. Myself personally, I believe that's true. How much uh, to each? Uh, for instance, uh, you know, the Holy See, the Vatican had this uh, just last February a dialogue, a discussion at Al Hazar. You know, between Al Hazar and the Vatican, the Holy See, on this question: how to fight uh, this propaganda of religious extremism. So uh, there are initiatives to answer as an answer to your very direct questions, and we will see how much uh, fruit and what are really the concrete, uh, yeah. you know, effects yeah, but, of that. Right, right. You know, my my based on what I see and hear in, in our research, you're absolutely right to suggest the counter narrative has to come from the Muslim community, yeah. in the imams, in the in the in the mosque, uh, yeah. in schools. Uh, this is the one because their voices will have more credibility, more credibility. than somebody coming from yeah. the West trying to, yeah, to, right. to preach to the have gospel. A kind of a counter, that, that, have that's a right. Counterproductive the, effect. The, yeah. yeah, the question is: you being a Catholic, I am being a Jew, or somebody else being a Muslim. We are a believer. The three monolithic religions is so much in common, a great deal in common. And you know, after all, Islam is it's driven from Father in Abraham so. <laughs> from Judeo-Christian uh, teaching. That's where yeah. Islam came from. Ninety-eight-five yeah. percent of Quran is based on the Old and the New Testament. Yes. Um, so there is a great deal of commonality there. Which you know, as I see it, as to what extent, from your perspective, we need to have, for example, discussions uh, between religious Jewish religious leaders. Christian leaders, Muslim leaders, to sit down together mm -hmm. and talk about these issues. And in terms of, yes, there is absolutely need for the Muslim to talk to Muslim to, mm -hmm. to disabuse them mm -hmm. of the notion that Islam for, is a violent uh, religion. Islam is not a violent religion. To disabuse, them, to, to, to disabuse them of the notion that Muhammad preached violence because Muhammad did not preach violence. But you can see in the Quran many phrases yeah. where Islam, where the Muslim, like ISIS, like Al Qaeda, select yeah. pieces select, uh, selectively. They take a piece of a paragraph yeah. or even a sentence yeah. and use it in order to promote their agenda. And we know that's happening. And we also know, like you said, that I don't think there is a major concerted effort by the by the Muslim religious communities, be that in the Middle East. And even in the West, are actually taking this very seriously, and are providing the counter narrative we are talking about. This is absolutely so what, critical. So, what, what, what do you think is the reason for that? Is there a fear that they will be targeted by these people who have these, uh, these extremist interpretations uh, or uh, you know selective? I, mean, uh, yeah. I think I think there are many many reasons. There are several reasons. I think one is um, certainly concern and fear. What happened? So their their sermons, their preaching in the mosque has become more more or less benign, talking about right and wrong. But do, they usually don't touch seriously in a serious way the question of 
Islamic um, violent extremism and how religion is being abused in that respect. There's effort by the, by the Western community, like in Europe in particular, asking, demanding in a way, from the imams in mosques to preach against uh, violent extremism. So there's that concern. The other thing, I think, the reason that many of the Muslim scholars uh, do not necessarily buy into the argument that you need to use religion in order to dissuade or disabuse somebody from certain beliefs. That is, they are takfiris, they are infidels. They, are, they don't belong to us. We do not want to debase the language, the yeah, religion. It's, uh, there is, it's, uh, it's, it's a very uh, common line. It's actually a, a very often repeated line in all the uh, official statements of uh, you know, Islamic countries and the United Nations, uh, you know, that this violence has nothing to do with Islam. Exactly. So it, it, is, uh, it is not really like washing your hands. But it's a, it's it's a correct, uh, you know. It's it, it is a very uh, logical uh, declaration statement that, in fact, or indeed, you know, what these uh, fundamentalist uh, terrorists and radicals are actually preaching are, is not Islam. But how are you going to counter that narrative? Remain. I mean, the question of how are you going to counter their narrative? Would it for you? I think. For you, it is not enough just to say that they don't represent Islam, that the Islam they are preaching is not the true Islam, it's not the authentic Islam. And exactly, exactly you know, uh, Malala Yousafzai was uh, at the United Nations uh, the other day. She was uh, appointed uh, the messenger of peace of the United Nations. She's the youngest messenger of peace at 19. And in her acceptance speech, she said exactly that. She said, I am a proud Muslim. I'm a proud Muslim woman in spite of what those radicals did to her. And she said that exactly the same thing, you know, those terrorists who claim to be to be Muslims, they are not Muslims. Exactly. They don't, yeah. they, they don't, yeah. they don't practice yeah. Islam. They distance yeah. themselves from them precisely because they do not want to equate mm -hmm. uh, extremism, violent extremism with, with Islam. What they are missing, however, the point they are missing really, given that these Islamic groups use religion, to make their case. That does not exempt those who make the claim that Islam is not, these are not Muslim, mm -hmm. and that Islam has nothing to do with that. They cannot make that claim anymore because the other side is using, using Islam it. as a religion, as a means by which to recruit, to indoctrinate, and to, to commit horrifying acts in the name of God, in the name of Allah. That is the problem with that kind of the missing link there, the inability... So, so what further step should it take? Uh, I mean, uh, how much... Uh, oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, if, even if you preach at the, at the mosque, you say these uh, radicals claim to be using Islam as, you know, as the motivation of their acts, or the violent acts. I mean, I think the, uh, the preachers, the Imam, the Mullahs, they would say, yes, this is not Islam. So it's a kind of just transferring the same declaration, the same statement, from uh, the UN to the mosque, uh, even with that, uh, we may say, would that make a difference? Well, you know, here, now, my feeling is that there is very strong need for the West, Western countries, United States, West European countries, 
to collaborate very closely with the Muslim Arab world, with the Arab world, the Muslim world, on this particular issue. That is, neither the Arab world can resolve that problem by themselves, nor the Western community can resolve the problem of radicalization within their Islam Muslim community on their own. There is a need for, because when you talk initially about the root causes, this is absolutely true. There is problem in West European Muslim community in terms of lack of integration. Yeah. It is happening. Yeah. But the real root causes actually have been and still are in the Middle East itself, in the Muslim countries. You know, poverty has to play plays a role with lack of yeah. education, discrimination, segregation, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the use of um, arbitrary, uh, lack of you know, law and order, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So you have all this chaotic situation whereby its breeding is allowing the, you know, nurturing the root of extremism. So the young men and women who are living in this country with no hope, no, no future, no prospect for a better life, they are more open, they become more open to invitation coming from extremist group and say, you're welcome. You see, if you come with us, you will belong to a community, you will have things yeah. to do. You will achieve, you'll have a goal, you'll have identity. So they give, they're embracing them and using the religious language in order to get them to join and in order to prevent them from questioning the actual mission. Subsequently. That's what I mean. If, so if we want to begin that kind of process, we're going to need to see to what extent the West, let's take the Vatican in this particular case, to what extent the West, the Vatican, or other say, uh, religious Jewish leaders, religious, I mean, Jewish religious leaders, to what extent they can actually work together and to try to promote this agenda that Muslims themselves sometimes are claiming Islam is not, they are not Muslim, we have nothing to do with them, mm-hmm. and once they, are, they feel that they engage them, Instead of leaving them alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, leave them alone. If we engage them as if we are admitting to some guilt, that we are, we are actually beginning to accept the fact that they are Muslim and we are Muslim, and so this is a problem that is affecting us, just to say. Actually, uh, certainly uh, dialogues, uh, not only you know, between Catholics and, and Muslims, or not only between uh, Jews and Catholics, uh, have been going on for a long time. As you remember, in the 1980s, I think it was, when was that? We celebrated the 20th anniversary recently of the first uh, meeting of all the religious leaders in Assisi. And then uh, Pope Francis recently also went there to commemorate the 20th anniversary. So these are actually, there are actually many initiatives. Probably we don't see them always. In the Philippines, I know for a fact, uh, a number of uh, of Catholic priests have been murdered because of their insistence, and uh, you know there is an association, a group. Uh, it's it's really more. It's not a dialogue. It's an association, a space for dialogue. It's called Silsila. It was founded by Catholic priests and and then by Muslim uh, is, uh, leaders. And uh, there are uh, the uh, the fundamentalists, the extremists, kidnapped and killed some of the priests and also some of the Muslims. So. Uh, in spite of all these setbacks, we might say, uh, this group has continued to grow and has continued to have more, you know, more. These are really grassroots movements uh, that could hardly be seen from, from afar, 
uh, there are actually many movements like that happening on the ground. You know, this uh, movement, you know, it's not only religious leaders. Most of the members of this, of this, uh, of this Sinsila group are ordinary people, lay people, women, men, children. So they come together and uh, not only discuss, but above all, pray, pray in their own way uh, as a community, but, you know, pray in their own, how their religion, uh, the way the religious teach them to pray. And uh, so it's, 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 it's very, it's effective, but at the same time, it has to be accompanied by other means, by other measures. I mean, the government, the states, the authorities have a fundamental role to play here. This might be probably, if you, if you think of the Middle East, this is one of the, also, of the problems there, the big problems. I mean, how could states, uh, authorities kind of uh, counter these movements within their own states? How could, for instance, how could this, these states promote, let's say, for instance, the fundamental principles of a pluralistic society? How could these states educate their citizens to, for instance, the principle of citizenship, that everybody, everyone is equal before the law, no matter what religion they have or what, what race they are, you know, they, they belong to. You know, these fundamental principles of living in a pluralist society is, is very much lacking. I mean, you know, the Arab exactly Spring, right. the Arab exactly. Spring was exactly. so, uh, especially in the West, you know, many, we all probably sang the praises of, of liberty, of freedom. But, you know, without understanding that these were just eruptions, uh, you know, freedom, yes, but are, are the elements there to make this freedom really be the real expression of freedom? I mean, you know, these societies, were these societies ready for pluralistic uh, society? No, no, there's no question. They're, so, they're not that's ready. That's a problem, you know, that's yeah. why the violence disrupting or bringing down what they call dictatorial regimes in a society which is completely unprepared. Uh, to practice and to observe fundamental rules and and, and principles in a pluralistic society, it, 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 it certainly is for, I think, where the results, I, I don't think it is the privileged way just to bring down a regime and then, you know, but the, the, see chaos. Yeah, course. but the point, the point you're raising and the important point that is, can, in fact, a pluralistic society coexist? Uh, and complement religious precepts, religious concept. For example, let's take Turkey today. Turkey is a good example of a country that was on the path of democracy, and Erdogan and was able to sort of combine, wanted to create a model of Islamic democracy. Well, things are now, of course, unraveling in Turkey, and Turkey is moving more and more towards becoming more and more Islamist. So there was a question from the very beginning, can the two coexist or reconcile between the two. Can you in fact have pluralistic society when, when, when if religion is a dominant political factor in many of these countries? Mm -hmm. So, but I want to... That is a question. I mean, how much of these uh, states would promote that? Uh, do, the, uh, do these states believe in the possibility of a harmonious pluralist society while, let's say, uh, Sharia would be... Uh, I see a fundamental element of interpretation of the law. This is precisely the yeah. point. It takes Saudi Arabia, for example, under what condition would they relinquish any kind of religious control uh, in order to replace it with some democratic form of whatever that may be. So there is inherent contradiction, inconsistencies between the two, and the Saudis never try to reconcile between the two, because this is the way it is. 
this is where we stand. But countries who presumably wanted to go through this experimentation, like Turkey, now we see it's not working there at all because things have dramatically changed. But let's, let's go back. That is, if this is the reality, which it is reality, how are we going to deal really with root causes, much of which exists in the Arab world, where Islam is still a dominant, and if you try to distance Islam from the activities of the Islamist extremism, Islamic extremism, where are we going to be a year, ten, five years? We are not, I don't see progress that is going somewhere, somewhere that's going to have to be bridged. Somewhere along the line, the Muslim countries ought to recognize that the, their religion, religion is being used and abused, and they can no longer distance themselves from it saying Islam is not violent, it has nothing to do with it. How do we? How do you go about changing the, the dynamics of this uh, kind of narrative? Mm -hmm. I, I really, th I mean, I think that the, the role of the state here is fundamental and essential, because if the state believes in uh, what uh, you know, the fundamental uh, principles of uh, a pluralistic, democratic society, then certainly the state has not only the right but the duty. To, but to, if they don't believe in that, however, I mean that's a problem. That's a problem. <laughs> if that's, if that, you know, I'm supposing. I mean, that's why the fundamental role of the state here could only be played, could only be performed, uh, uh, done by a state who believes in, in uh, with authorities who believe in, in in these fundamental principles. If the state uh, is not willing or does not believe in these principles, then it's not to their interest to work for that. I think it's a simple... So there is a room, however, and given, given this reality in the region, among most Muslim countries, is there a room for um, religious, like we said earlier, uh, scholars uh, from various faiths? Let's yeah. talk about, in particular, the Jew, Judaism, mm -hmm. Christianity, and Islam. Is there a role for this, the leadership of this, the three monolithic religion, to, to do something? You know, you mentioned a conference uh, and the, uh, this interfaith conference, yeah. and there was a great deal of discussion about it. Mm -hmm. But you also indicated, yeah. rightfully so, yeah. what was the follow-up? Yeah. What happened after the conference? To what extent this, yeah, this the uh, consensus the, the, the was the dissemination of, of what was learned, of yeah. what, was, uh, what was agreed, what was yeah. agreed on the consensus, how that was translated into action in the yeah. ground, in order so that to promote interfaith uh, and. As a religion, but mm -hmm. also promote the role of each religion yeah. and it's, that it's, it's playing. So, to what extent do you think th this yeah. is going to be necessary in the future to continue, not just with kind yeah, of with convocation level, uh, like yeah, this? With the level of, uh, with the formal level of uh, leaders, but also really in the communities, which is. How do you, you know, how do we go decisive. about that? You know, uh, the, the, the answer to, uh, I think the answer to your question presupposes really a number of analysis of how religions are, how different religions are in their structures, in their doctrines, not only in their doctrines, but in the structures. For us, I mean, you know, for the Catholic Church, we set up pyramidal hierarchical structure with institutions all over the place, on the ground, connected to the top. I mean, you know, what the Pope says, uh, we do. <laughs> well, I think uh, that might be, that could be, as far as I know, really a very distinguishing characteristic of the Catholic Church, not even other Christian Churches could, could have that kind of pyramidal structure in which what uh, these, we might say, the supreme authority says, then the, the, you know the others, uh, the others, uh, you know, fo follow. 
And then it's not only what he says, but he has the structure to bring it down to, to the ground, to bring it down to the last village, to the last chapel, to the last parish, to the last uh, faith community. So, I mean, if you see that, for instance, in the Islamic world, I mean, although Al-Azhar is recognized as, you know, is the, the most authoritative of all, in, at least in the Sunni world, is the, mm -hmm. the highest, at least, uh, uh, religious authority. But uh, does it have, in the Muslim religion, do they have a, a kind, uh, do they have that structure and that belief that what Al-Azhar uh, accepts, uh, says, or teaches, should go down to the very last, uh, to the last most, or, or, to, or to the last madrasha, that they would listen to Al-Azhar? I mean, uh, I don't think it, uh, I mean, I'm not only talking about Islam, I'm talking about also about other religions. No, no, you're, you're right. I mean, to what extent that kind of teaching influence others. If I may ask you, like, almost like a personal question, you are an archbishop, you're a believer, which is, a, which is admirable. But do you also believe in democratic form of government? Do yeah. you? Yeah, sure. Obviously you do. But you don't see contradiction between being a deep believer and also being a, a, a man who also believes in freedom and democracy. And you've been able to reconcile that in your mind. Yeah. So how do you reconcile that in your mind? Because, like you just said, what the Holy Father says, we do. Mm -hmm. There's been no questions. You don't mm -hmm. ask questions. On the other hand, you also believe, I'm a free man, mm -hmm. am I right? Yes. I'm a, I can say what I want to say, and, and so somewhere along the line, you've been able to reconcile between yes. your deep belief and a political system that mm -hmm. speaks for freedom and, and, and rights and laws uh, and order. I always think that is fundamental in our teaching, in our training. You know, one of the, uh, I'm sure you've heard probably of this very important uh, document of the Second Vatican Council, is the, we call that the, the, the pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world. Its, uh, its title is Gaudium et Spes. Of course, the three, uh, the, the first three words of the document in Latin, as you know, traditionally documents are titled. And uh, there it is very clear that, uh, you know, the church and the state are autonomous. Yes. They are independent of their own sphere. And yet, there is such a huge, we might say, area in between that they share. And it is precisely because the citizen is also the believer. So, you might say, ultimately, both are working or promoting the good of the same person. So how are you going to reconcile their two, uh, we might say, being a religion and being a state you know, having the same subject. You know, of course, these uh, in the mature democratic, uh, you know, is, uh, I say, systems uh, that has been, you know, it's progressively being cleared out. Sometimes it goes back, sometimes it regresses. Look at the United States. I mean, why did the founding fathers, the founding fathers, they were uh, practically fundamentalist Christians in a <laughs> sense, you know. They, they, were, they were not tolerant to the Catholics, they were not tolerant to other Christians. And, you know, you know, they were the descendants of the pilgrims, etc., etc., because of religious persecutions, uh, they, you know, they came to the United States also. And yet, in spite of the fact that they didn't love, necessarily love the other Christians, they didn't necessarily love the other uh, people of other religions, yet they made it a point. I mean, the Second Amendment, why would the Second Amendment be possible? 
because think that in spite of the fact that I don't love you, we respect your religious freedom. So it is, exactly. it, it is already, uh, it, it is a principle that has been courageously really put into, in, into writing, into the constitution by the, the original thinkers of the system. And these are fundamental, uh, we might say fundamental decisive points in the history of the development of the system, you know, democratic system of a country. Could that be possible? Would a country, let's say in the Middle East, say, you know, this is, I don't like you, I could even hate you. I mean, you know, that's not your problem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I respect your, your fundamental freedom of religion. I respect uh, uh, that even Muslims could change their own religion or they could say that I, have, I don't believe anymore. I mean, to be an atheist or as now they are called nuns all over the place. <laughs> I mean, this fundamental principle, I think, it has become the backbone of generally harmonious relationship between a state and a religion, a church, yeah. and between democratic principles and religious principles. So there is not only that possibility, we have example. There could be tensions, there are regressions, as I've said, you know, during the Obama administration, you know, there's a huge question of religious freedom, there was the Hobby Lobby case, and uh, there is a case of the Little Sisters of the Poor and many other Catholic institutions who were forced to do something against their conscience, against their religious principles. And, you know, they won practically all the cases. We won because uh, the courts determined that these are violations of your religious freedom. So yeah, uh, yeah. the state could very well function without forcing the poor sisters to distribute uh, abortifacients, for instance. I mean, why would sisters taking care of old people would ever be busy force? I don't know, in a country where euthanasia is legal, for instance, how could you force the poor sisters, you know, to kind of administer euthanasia to their to their guests? I mean, in the in the in a, in a, in a home for to care for the old people. So these are, I think, principles. I'm sure. I mean, I am not a scholar. You know, I'm not. Uh, even an expert, but you know, looking at really from from that uh, you know vast perspective, from that perspective, you know, I'm sure that there are many scholars in the Middle East, many Islamic scholars, and many other scholars who are friends of these Islamic scholars know very well this fact, this system. I mean, otherwise they wouldn't be scholars if they don't know. Well, they, yes, but and they, they know. think that they would, yeah. they, they, they would be convinced that this could work also for them. They, they know it, they understand it, but to, to what extent, in fact, they are active in promoting what they themselves believe in, you know. I mean, there's an element, there's an element of certain freedom among the in Arab states, specifically in, in religious matters, specifically when it came to Christians and Jews. I mean, Muhammad himself excluded these two from being being subject to forced conversion. So they call the Declaration Medina. The, yeah, the Declaration that... So they did allow freedom yeah. for Jews to mm -hmm. worship what they want in, a, in Judaism and the Christian to do that. So there was that level of tolerance, religious mm -hmm. tolerance. Mm -hmm. It is changing a little because of the last, last yeah. decade and a half yeah. or so of what's happening in Iraq, yeah, what's happening true. in Syria. It's, it's changing. It's many, I'm sorry, I would comment okay, on that. Yeah. I think, I mean, you know, especially the declaration, I mean, the Medina's, uh, the decrees, uh, the Medina decrees reminds of Muhammad, certainly uh, preceded the Quran. That could also be a problem. I mean, you know, you could use, could, could, you know, Islamic scholars willing to use 
the Medina decrees of Muhammad to interpret the, the Quran, which came after. I mean, this is also another aspect of what they call problem, the religious yeah. problem, because there is so much hermeneutic, there is so much what's called a historical analysis of text that, that should still go on. Of course, uh, I think every religion, the Catholic Church, uh, Christianity in general, for that matter, you know, experiences this huge, uh, you might say, uh, progress in terms of mm -hmm. interpreting, you know, the biblical texts. I think, right. I'm sure the Jewish scholars are, have been doing the same, and also the Muslim scholars. There are some Muslim scholars, some of them certainly were persecuted, or Pakistani scholars who have been, you know, trying and really exploring the, uh, the side of, uh, you know, using, using historical, uh, you know, the historical interpretation of secret texts. So, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think this is a good example. I mean, how could you use the, the Medina decrees, which preceded the Quran, in interpreting the Quranic texts, yeah. or the Hadith, and etc. So, it is uh, something, I, I guess, that is going on, and one hopes that, you know, that uh, there will be, you know, there will be a uh, Really, I think I'm excited to see in the future, in the near future. I hope to see how this, uh, what went, what Christianity, Christianity went through in the 19th century, for instance, or early 20th century, in terms of the interpretation hermeneutics of the sacred texts. Mm -hmm. You know, you know that's why you know exegesis, such a demanding science. You know, to get a doctorate, you need to know the ancient languages. You need to know ancient history. You need eight years to get a doctorate. I mean, you know, all yeah. these things. And then yeah, it's no. only just yeah. the start. You are not even yet a scholar, even if yeah. you are already a doctor. You right, need right. to keep on studying. So I, I'm excited to see uh, if, you know, if uh, in the Islamic world, they would have schools of, of thoughts in, in, you know, in interpreting secret texts, uh, you know, using various tools in which I, I other just, religions yeah. have undergone. I just want to conclude by one question and... and um, to talk about, and that is, we know that conflicts, be that the Palestinian conflict, conflict in Syria, obviously promote extremism, all kinds, you know. And uh, we had recently a discussion in a university, Middle Nova University, about mm -hmm. this issue. And I raised the question, the extent to which, for example, the Catholic Church can play a role in mitigating the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because that conflict feeds into extremism, just like any other conflict in the Middle East, when you have this kind of problem that has not been solved for 70 years. Do you feel, do you feel that the Catholic Church has a role to play in mitigating these kind of conflicts, which are, at least in part, root cause behind extremism? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there will always be a role, but, uh, you know, if you look at it, there are so many competing... Uh, uh, influences and, and the, whether the Palestinians or the Jews are, of course, uh, various currents of how they should approach a problem. I will I will mention that in, uh, in the Holy See uh, statement next week at the, uh, the Security Council. But you know, look at Hamas. I mean, how much how much do you think the Catholic Church or whatever religion could influence them when we know that there are concurrent influences in that? But I'm not saying that we should give up. Uh, you know, I, I, I have in mind several examples of how we have been, you know, there is a Catholic priest uh, who is a Milkite in, in Galilee, you know. He has a school where all the yeah. uh, Jews uh, and Catholic <clears throat> Christians and Muslims are, are welcome. And, you know, the school really encourages dialogue. 
Uh, yeah. no, I just uh, it's only yeah. a kind of a small initiative in this sense. Uh, if we could multiply, I, you know, there is another one in Jericho now. Yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, I'm going to uh, the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem will be here next month, and uh, we'll see what uh, we can do. And in, the people Muslim in Syria will be here also next month. So we have probably one. One final thing yeah. I want to say. Do you think? Do you think, for example, if the Holy the, the, the Holy Father. <laughs> if Holy Father were to invite religious Israeli and Palestinian religious leaders, Arab Israelis, to come and have that kind of dialogue. Yeah, Do you I, think I, that I, can Holy be Father useful? Holy Father has done that a number of times. Uh, no, uh, actually yeah. inviting them for this specific purpose. And then, yeah, I, I, will, uh, I think there has been a series of encounters, meetings on that already. And, of course, he could continue. I, I'm sure he will continue. Uh, not even only in the you know, inviting religious leaders uh, from uh, among the Palestinians and, and, and the Jews, but uh, also uh, the political leaders, as you know, as you remember, when uh, Abbas and uh, Shimon Peres uh, came to the Vatican, and, yes, yes. you know, etc. I do believe uh, that I'm not, I don't have really a list of all these meetings uh, going on in the Middle East, and in the particular in what we call the Holy Land, that is, you know, whether it's in the Israeli uh, territories or whether it's in the Palestinian territories, but indeed, I, I, as far as I know, there are there are dialogues in different levels, different sizes, <laughs> different uh, actors, you might say. There are dialogues that will lay faithful. There are dialogues uh, conducted at the, at the level of communities. The only yeah. thing is, I know, I agree with you, these are, there are duties happening, but something that when the highest authority... Yeah, the threshold is not yet reached in which yeah. they could really influence That's the That's the whole yeah. point. I mean, you have the highest authority actually more visibly mm -hmm. has given far more cover. Mm -hmm. This is what a role that the Christian church can play. Anyway, I think, I think we all need to do a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Pray more, uh, work more, uh, be friendlier. <laughs> That's be right. more compassionate. That's right. <laughs> and care and love. Yeah, and that is what it's all about. Yeah. And I wish the extremists, Islamist extremists, just learn one simple lesson that there's a better way to achieve their objective yeah. without killing and maiming and destroying. But Pray anyway. That. That's what the Holy Father prayed last Palm Sunday after, you know, practically the bombing in Egypt happened when, you know, the. Uh, the, the Pope was celebrating Palm Sunday also in the Vatican. So the end of the celebration is, uh, let's pray for the conversions of the violent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, yeah. This is really, <laughs> is really true. I mean, you know, there are, we do, as I said, solutions to the problems. They, they, this big problem is, 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 you know, should be pursued at different levels, the level of states, the level of, you know, national authorities, the level of the international community, at the level of local communities and authorities. And at the level, really, of individual lives, and, uh, you know. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree, hundred percent. There's so much there. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you, Professor. So, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's wonderful to hear you. Thank, thank you, you so you much. For, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page, and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.